Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of uh, talking to Taras Gresco about his new book on uh, dealing with Mussolini's Italy, uh, Possess the Air. Welcome, Taras. Hey, great to be here. So uh, why don't you sort of tell our listeners who you are and what this book is about? Okay. Uh, And I'll drink whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) I've got some Italian red wine, courtesy Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. you in front of me. It does great things for the voice. I don't know about uh, about whiskey. But it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I normally have a really high girly voice. It makes it a little more manly. <laughs> <laughs> manly, yes, but I like yeah. it too. <laughs> I think there's something in the tannins of red wine that are really good for the. I was there was talking to a CBC host, and he like he was not a drinker, but he'd have a glass of red wine before his broadcasts, and. I've experimented with that. You just go yeah. in, have a quick shot, even in the morning, you know, and just gargle with it, basically. And it does. It changes your Yeah, voice. no, my friend Bareth uh, Rajakumar, he's a blues musician, mm-hmm. and he's told me the same thing, that uh, red wine, uh, whiskey, a little bit before a show, it gives your voice a kind of more something, like a kind of a resonance. A gravitas. Little, yeah, yeah, like a grit. <laughs> but, uh, so, so who are you? So I, people who yeah, haven't my name heard is, of you. Uh, my name is Taras Gresco. I, uh, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a, like a nonfiction specialist. Um, I'm working on my eighth work of nonfiction. I've never taught. I've never done anything else really except be a, a journalist uh, uh, and, and a book writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents are, uh, are both writers and editors. They met at the Globe and Mail in the 1960s. And uh, I spent a lot of time in my teenage years trying not to be a writer <laughs> <laughs> But I it's guess like, it's like the the family business. Exactly. Every yeah. time I try to get, they pulled me back in. Yeah, they yeah. did. They yeah, did. Yeah. And it was just a natural process because you know I'd come home from school, they'd edit my stories, what happened during the day for grammar and tone, and you know storytelling technique. And I, uh, yeah, in my anyways, long story short, in my mid twenties, I'd lived in Paris for four years where I was trying not to be a writer. Um, I was teaching English, drinking a lot of red wine, <laughs> <laughs> and doing many other things. Um, I had my own little uh, 
lost half decade there. <laughs> and nice. The lost years. And then uh, came back to Vancouver where I'd grown up. Um, I was married to a French woman. We broke up. And uh, my best friend had moved to Montreal. And Montreal for me was a great place to continue speaking French. I'd kind of fallen in love with French culture, fallen out of love with English Canadian culture. <laughs> <clears throat> and, um, and at the time in the mid nineties, Montreal was incredibly cheap. There was sort of this bohemian feel that's still here, but it was just a lot more affordable and it was a great place to be. I started my, I started writing a little bit in Paris and Vancouver, but I really just stepped into it here and I wrote my first book. It was called Sacre Blues um, <laughs> about uh, – I was 30 years old. It was about um, – uh, it was sort of a, a layman's introduction or layperson's introduction to Quebec culture. And we'd just come out of the referendum. Uh, it, was, it, came, it was published in 2000, four years after the referendum. So it was a, I was trying to do a non-political take on Quebec because everyone had their own – damn opinion about, you know, Quebec and the state of the country. Mordecai Richter had just written, no, Canada, Quebec. Um, and I just said, this is an interesting place. I'm going to get to know it. And I spent a year, year and a half, you know, exploring the province, meeting people here, finding out what Quebec French was, you know, because I, you know, learned Parisian French and uh, learning how this place was distinct, both from English Canada United States, North America, and uh, and France. It's not. A, it's it's far from being anything like the France that I'd gotten to know. That was which was my idea of francophone culture. It's a completely distinct place. Oh, yeah, so this completely. Book, I mean, uh, I. It's funny yeah. that you because I, I love that book and I I remember reading it and thinking that you because I'm I'm from here and I but I moved out in the. I moved out from home like uh, in the early 1990s and mm -hmm. I kind of like had a lot of my really wild times in the 90s in Montreal. And so yeah. it it really was a, a kind of, I mean, it was bad economically. There was, you know, a lot of problems and stuff like that. But yeah, if you were young yeah. and you wanted to do like music or art or writing yeah. in the 90s, it was a dream because everything, the, the recession, stuff like that had just rents were so low. Like I remember, I remember like yeah. I had I had a five and a half apartment yeah. on top of uh, an Italian place, uh, but they kind of doubled up as a Greek place. So they had souvlaki and pizza. But mm -hmm. I had a I had a five and a half in Verdun on top of a restaurant. It was three hundred dollars a month, yeah. you know. And because we we're on top of a restaurant, they heated us all winter. <laughs> yeah. So we had like practically no hydro. Our hydro bill was nothing, right? And uh, so if you just had like one or two roommates, you could afford to live on practically nothing. Like if you had a part-time job at like a cafe, that would give you enough money to pay your rent and your bills. Yeah. So because great. there was yeah. such low uh, overhead costs, it meant that we just got all, all the interesting people from the rest of Canada came here. Yeah. And they were all here. Like and so it was because, just because it was very uh, cheap to live and very kind of tolerant and interesting and stuff. Well, like yeah. Let's. I mean, just to transition to what my latest book is about, uh, "Possess the Air." Like that was the dynamic that was going on in Europe in the 1920s. People talk about oh, Paris in the 1920s. What a bohemian place. Same went for a lot of the other capitals like Rome. Well, 
part of the secret was the American and Canadian dollar were very strong. It was incredibly cheap to live. You know, Hemingway living on Rue Contrascarp was paying nothing. He could, you know, he could afford to write a few short stories and uh, keep them in uh, wine, you know, for 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 the rest of the year, you know? mm-hmm. especially when you're publishing them as Fitzgerald was in the Saturday Evening Post and things like that. So that was part of the, the secret. And I think Montreal was kind of a poor man's, you know, version of Paris in the 20s. Um, it was uh, very oh, – I was paying $250 a month uh, rent for a 10 and a half. What? I was sharing it with someone. Was this like crawling with roaches and mice or – It was a former brothel. It was like an actual – like. Antibillon? It was on uh, Rochelle right across from Versterelysee. Kitty corner from that bar of Aristera Lise. <laughs> God, I love. Okay, just for our listeners who are in the, the rest of the world here, there is literally this bar that its big claim to fame is that we have sterilized glass. <laughs> and beautiful neon, beautiful orange neon. Yeah. I love yeah. that place. I yeah. used to get mushrooms from that place. There was a guy who <laughs> yeah. sold magic mushrooms right out of that place. I find it so funny in how, that, like in Montreal, there's so many of these kind of uh, heritage businesses that have names like that, yeah. like you know, super hygienic dry cleaners or nouveau <laughs> system. Like they were all getting very like because they're. Must have been dealing with polio and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's like, must have really dirty. we sterilize our glasses. <laughs> We're so clean. <laughs> yeah, We're so yeah. clean. <laughs> it's funny they persisted like that. But so, uh, yeah. yeah, and it was actually this place I was living in was a former uh, – like up until we moved in, it – they were there were still clients coming. So every room had a fan on the ceiling and a sink and there was like a little – main office where you put the money through the door. So like, you know, two or three years later, there'd still be old guys, old French Canadian guys coming by at like two in the morning saying is like, is uh, Jeanette still here? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it's, uh, we've moved on there. <laughs> when my wife and I first met in Baltimore, uh, we, we ended up sort of deciding, okay, well, we shouldn't be paying two rents, so let's just pick an apartment. So we decided we would move into her apartment because her apartment was nicer than mine. And then we got our another one. But for a while, so she was living in this basement apartment in Baltimore. And we would have every once in a while, like two or three in the morning, we'd get a knock on the door and people would say, is Peaches here? Peaches. So there had been this transvestite who lived in her apartment okay. for like two decades who was a famous prostitute. And people, like, guys would be, like, these, like, 55-year-old guys would be, like, drunk and did, like, a couple lines of coke. Mm. And, like, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to go and see Peaches. And they would, like, <laughs> knock on the door. Oh, and we'd be like, is Peaches there? We're like, no, Peaches isn't here anymore. <laughs> wow. So you had a ten and a half. That's amazing. An old brothel. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Anyway, I mean, that lasted for a few years. And then, uh, anyways, I mean, just to finish the story. So I've been writing... I kind of I, – I I have a big problem. I just like am interested in so many different things and my agent hates that and my publishers hate it because I get passionate for these different projects. Part of it's really connected to you know what I want to do. Like my parents were sort of lifelong freelancers. Uh, authors, editors, and I loved the the mobility that I saw that it gave them. They could just go off and have adventures, right? And uh, when I said to myself, okay, I'm going to do this writing thing, part of it was this is my way to get out in the world and experience the world. 
So for my first three or four books, I became – I wrote these sort of polemical travel logs uh, like The Devil's Picnic. There was one called The End of Elsewhere, which was my second book, which was a lot of fun. I put all my things in storage when I was in Montreal um, and uh, put them in a friend's storage room. And I spent a year going from um, what's called uh, Finisterre, Fistera in Spain um, to – so the end of the earth in Spain, Finisterre, to a place called Tianya Haijiao on Hainan, which is the end of the earth in uh, in China. Um, <laughs> and the idea was I was going to like look at what mass tourism had done to the planet, how how we got to this stage where the world was so touristed. So I started by walking across northern Spain along the Camino de Santiago, but doing it in the wrong direction. <laughs> and going from west to east, it was a little confusing for people. I figured out I could act. There was, it was legitimate because you can follow that route to Rome. You just, so I just told everyone I was going to Rome. <laughs> they were very admiring. Um, and then when I got to France, I did like, you know, Michelin car tourism, you know, the Michelin sort of uh, the history of the Michelin guides and the transition. Anyways, I took a cruise ship, all these different modes of travel. Um, and so for the next couple of books, like uh, The Devil's Picnic, which was about forbidden substances around the world and um, Bottom Feeder, which was about – that was I've read that one. That was yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> about how to get fish and how to like properly – that was just <laughs> – Totally random. I mean, like, yeah, I can understand why your agent and your would be frustrated because it's just completely out of left field. It's like, you know what? I was trying to figure it out. Yeah, it's, it's. I was trying to figure it out. Like, I grew up like doing projects. Like, I, so I grew, I grew up in like hippie Vancouver, hippie transitioning to punk rock Vancouver. Um, so one of these edges of the world where. There were tons of experiments and alternative living and part of that was the educational system, the alternative schools. So I went to a bunch of alternative schools. It was always project-based and my parents were always you know, working on the next article, working on their next feature. And the funny thing is my kids are going to an alternative school here and it's all project-based learning. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're like – now I'm helping them with their projects. We just went down to the Pointe à Calier Archaeological Museum to photograph – the old fortifications of Montreal because he's doing a project about forts and mm-hmm. he's going to put it in his PowerPoint. <laughs> so I don't know. It must be, it's, maybe there's something in the DNA, but I just get passionate about these things. But to get to the book that yeah, I've yeah. just written, Possess the Air, for the last two books, a total shift like Shanghai Grand, which was about Shanghai in the 1930s. It tells the story of Mickey Han. Uh, her lover, a uh, poet called Xiao Shunmei, beautiful, incredibly handsome, elegant, uh, very wealthy um, Chinese. Addict. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she was too yeah, no. towards the end. Uh, uh, and her relationship with him and this guy called Sir Victor Sassoon who basically built um, – the, the major skyscrapers who created the skyline of uh, Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s after moving from Bombay. So that book really happened because I, we had kids and uh, Desmond was born and I'd been doing these sort of – my idea was, you know, I'm going to spend I, – I had an idea that I was going to spend, you know, maybe 20, 30 years – doing a reportage, doing nonfiction, getting out into the world 
And then when I gained enough experience, I'd settle down and, you know, write my Ulysses or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, write a, a great work of fiction. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm ever going to do that, actually, because I find nonfiction so rich and I, 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 people sometimes call it historical narrative, historical nonfiction, creative nonfiction. I find there's just so much you can do and I don't feel limited by, um, by the demands of truth, by, by not coloring outside the lines when I'm doing my works of nonfiction. So well, anyways, I would also say, you know, with regard to Shanghai Grand, which I absolutely adored mm -hmm. um, and possessed the air, but more Shanghai Grand. If you turned Shanghai Grand into a, a novel, yeah. people wouldn't believe you. Yeah. Like they would think, I mean, Morris, Tugun, Cohen, uh, you know, these people, they would not, they would think you were, it was too far-fetched. Yeah, and true. so very often the um, nonfiction gives you access to, to people and to stories that are so fucking insane, mm -hmm. that are so out of the ordinary that if you made it into a novel, people would say it was implausible. I think you got a point there. I mean, and I'm very conscious of that when I'm looking for a story to tell. Um, you have to, I mean, Mickey Hahn, who's the star, she's this young woman um, born in St. Louis, uh, who uh, wrote for the New Yorker after the Depression. She was went through this heartbreak. Uh, a, she was going out with a Hollywood producer who beat her up and she hopped on a boat, a ship and sailed to China. She was actually trying to go to Africa. She was going to stop in China and Shanghai for a little while, but she fell in love with Shanghai. What I found was just, she was such a great self-documenter. I fell in love with her voice. But then I started, I've also fallen in love with the process of historical research because these people, the ones that I've that I that I chose to make the subjects of my choose to make the subjects of my books, were these extravagant self documenters, and I think that we're losing that. It'll be hard to write books like this in the future, just because of the way we communicate now through texts and emails, and, and you know, much, to a much lesser extent through Skype and things like that. These people documented their lives and letters home. So when I was looking for these stories to tell, they had to be great characters, characters that you couldn't, you almost didn't believe were were real, um, and uh, they had to have been committed to examining their own lives. So these people were, um, and there's just such a, a rich body of material. And it's funny how much is accessible. I mean, so I ended up going to Shanghai and finding this old Catholic library that was full of the only place really almost in the world that you could find like the Shanghai Mercury, um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the North China Evening Post, all of these papers. And you know, I could flip through these broad, broadsheets and it was all there down to the weather reports and that kind of thing, you know, that allows you to reconstruct the time. I tried not – these people were so good at describing things um, and there was so much unpublished stuff um, or forgotten stuff. You know, I was digging up these old volumes, these forgotten works of uh, – of reportage, which were widely read in their time, but have been completely forgotten. And they, they're often journalists, right? And I always loved journalists. I, my parents would 
their friends would come over. They were always great raconteurs. Um, I love newsroom culture. And so I knew that with the Shanghai Grand Story, I'd be, I'd get the stories if I, if, if I could access that stuff. And amazingly, you can because mm-hmm. through archives and all that stuff. Well, you love those characters, but you also sort of, which I, one of the things I find interesting about your books is that you also sort of talk about what is, kind of rapacious and you know mildly sociopathic about these characters too yeah. like like with uh you know talking about how uh you know like Lauro Debosis is kind of a player and he sort of like writes these it comes on really strong in these letters to mm. a lot of different women which makes you wonder you know about his sincerity and then you know with Mickey Han like her sort of just acknowledging that like I use people yeah. And I, you know, that I'm like, and so you, you see that like, yeah, these people are really good at yeah. kind of telling you about their experience and talking about the world. But you also recognize that there's something fundamentally aberrant about these people. Yeah. Yeah. Like something a little bit, I mean, with, with Laura DeBosis, like one of the things that I find fascinating about him is that here's a guy who lives in really polarized times a lot of people are becoming fascists, like right-wing fascists. A lot of people are becoming these like hardcore kind of left-wing, uh, you know, anti-illiberals who who basically want to like you know rip down everything and like. And I mean, one of the things I obviously you can't do any everything in a book, but um, I read I read Possess the Air with a, a couple of friends and in a reading group. And one of the things that they immediately said, they're historians, and they they said, well, you know, he's not mentioning the fact that part of the reason why the fascists were so popular among among people who normally would have been quite kind of middle of the road Mm. was that the far left was engaging in more and more violence and were doing the kind of like, you know, like, like, what's his name? Uh, Christopher, uh, the guy who left wing guy in the stand, blanking on his name right now. Uh, he wrote Death of the Christopher Hedges, oh, yeah. the one who wrote yeah. Death of the Liberal Class yeah. and stuff like that. And he has been like a lone voice uh, on the left who has said to Antifa and things like that, you need to stop, mm-hmm. like, you know, smashing people over the face with bike locks and stuff yeah. like that and thinking right, that that's okay. Because, like, throughout history, whether it be um, you know, in in kind of Weimar Germany or in Italy pre Mussolini, uh, he listed off a bunch of examples. He wrote this article in the Guardian, and he said, like, so often fascist violence is justified because of left wing rejection of of kind of liberalism and of like you know. And so there was. They said, you know, part of the reason Mussolini and the fascists were embraced by people who normally wouldn't like them was because uh, workers that didn't want to go along with things that the Communist Party were doing were getting, like, beat up in front of their families, uh, were getting, like, you know, beat up, like, on the shop floor, and were getting, like, there was a lot of, like, really extreme violence, and people felt like Hmm. somebody needs to kind of move in, and it, it becomes a justification. That's why we have false flag operations, right? Because... It becomes a justification for fascist Look, I t- violence. I totally understand your point, but I'm going to dispute it in the case of uh, of Italy um, in 1919. You know, after the war, there was definitely a lot of interest in 
what was going on in the Soviet Union. There were, there were massive strikes that shut down the country. Um, there was worker occupations of factories. You, you know, the Fiat, uh, Fiat actually offered to turn it, the, its entire factory over to the workers. But from everything I've read from, you know, the top scholars of the fascist era, um, like Christopher Duggan and uh, Bosworth, this, uh, uh, the, uh, Mussolini's Australian biographer, There was it really wasn't going anywhere. Italy didn't turn prove to be fertile ground for communism. Um, there was a flirtation with it, but it was all petering out. And I dispute the fact that there was that much communist and socialist violence on a day to day basis. There was really a lot of fascist violence, and it's very well documented. Um, there were 3,000 socialists killed in the run-up to the March on Rome in 1922. Um, and from everything I've read, from all, and I've read a lot of eyewitness accounts of it, the fascists were the ones who were, who turned violence into a cult, who developed the oops, who developed the aesthetics of violence, uh, the black shirts, the singing Giovanezza, slapping people around the face with uh, with dead codfish, doing cocaine and cherry brandy before they'd hop. I had never into, heard about that before. Like that just blew my mind. Yeah, it was they're a, doing lines of coke and doing shots of sherry before they go out and beat people up. Like, I know, and I, and I, it sounds like the Proud Boys or something. Because yeah. that's the thing with, uh, what's her name, from the New York Times who followed around the Proud Boys. They apparently, a lot of their actions are preceded by going to bars, doing a lot of coke and a lot of shots. And I I, I, I couldn't help but think about that. When, yeah, for you sure. Know, when well, I was, it makes total sense. Um, yeah. It's weird to think of it back then. But I mean, the hero of these guys uh, of you know, who, who really founded the aesthetic of, of fascism, Gabriele, Gabriele D'Annunzio, the decadent poet. Um, he was, you know, he was a, he, at various times addicted to opiates, ether, uh, a total orientalist decadent who I visited his like palazzo on the shores of Lake, Gar Lake Garda. It's insane. He used to like develop his own colognes and put on like a pint of cologne every day. <laughs> Um, and he really, he was, he was a brave guy in a lot of ways. Uh, he, well, he's high all the time. But it's was, easy to be brave when you're high all well, the time. Well, that's what I think, you know? Like Coke in particular is this great ego booster oh, yeah. that allows you, think, you to... You know, uh, Coke, you think yeah. all of your jokes are really funny. You yeah. think everything you're saying is so insightful. It's, uh, that's what it, it's that a would power trip. That would explain a lot of Denuncio's literature, yeah. which is totally unreadable. <laughs> it's like completely Baroque and just full of like these... 50, 50 lira words that are, <laughs> that are worth nothing, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for sure. No, I so I, I uh, your 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 colleagues uh, with with due deference to them, uh, I've looked at that period a lot, and the fascist the there was a a new intensity to the fascist violence, and I, I just in the sheer sheer amount of it. And here's what was what is happening. What we have to watch out for now, there was. Collaboration between the paramilitaries, the militaries. So often 
these black shirts who are riding along with the local gendarmes or carabinieri um, on punitive raids of socialists or labor leaders or, you know, whatever Casa del Popolo they had because they were these great socialist working working centers after the First World War where people get together and whatever, play cards and, you know, discuss their next labor emotion. So they'd the, these guys would show up in these Fiat trucks and then kick the crap out of uh, everybody there and then ride off into the night on Punisher or make them drink castor oil, which was something that uh, Danuncio's followers uh, developed when they occupied what Fiume. A, can you just tell our listeners – because that is one of the weirdest things that I learned from your book, which I ended up going down a rabbit hole for hours <laughs> online like looking into this. What is – tell them what you're talking about, the castor, castor oil. oil. Yeah. Yeah, it's – um. Well, I guess the best way to describe it, it, it was really – I'd always heard about the fascist tortures, you know, that you, you'd have to defecate on a red flag, that kind of thing or this weird one where they – one group would uh, slap people around the head with a dead codfish. Another one where they, they, they're famous for like having um, a bludgeon. And they even prayed to this saint. There was a, you can find still find a statue of a Madonna holding a bludgeon, which was like the Santa. <laughs> this is like the Mexican cartels having their own patron saint. Oh, Santa Muerte. Yeah, 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 like just like weird. Yeah, but um, castor oil was I'd, I'd heard about it, but the, one of the characters in this book. Um, I really tell this story from the point of view of expats living in particularly in Rome. And there was this great journalist couple called uh, Edgar and Lillian Maurer. And they – she wrote a book called Journalist's Wife, which has one of the most vivid descriptions I've read of the castor oil treatment. So uh, one of her friends, uh, a young woman, a Neapolitan journalist, was – Walking around – now, I forget which uh, – I forget which uh, piazza it was, one of the piazzas in central Rome. Um, and she was – looked at the office of a socialist newspaper that had just been burned down by the fascists and she made a comment. She said, isn't that horrible? And there were two black shirts walking by and she describes their fezes jerking backwards and they grab her and frog march her into the – to the local – to the nearest drugstore, the nearest farmacia. And the, the many of the pharmacists were very sympathetic uh, as some small shop, shopkeepers were to the fascists. He produced a quart of castor oil. She had to choke this down and then they put her in the back of a taxi and ordered the taxi driver to drive around the square as she vomited and shat herself basically for the next hour like and then they just threw her out into the street, making it very clear that they could have done whatever they wanted with her. It was a humiliating, humiliating form of torture um, that didn't leave that many traces. If you ever watch Fellini's Amarcord, um, there's a uh, – which is about where he grew up, the town of Rimini. There's a sequence that makes it very, very um, visceral because a local merchant um, – local businessman it receives this torture, is tortured by the uh, the black shirts and you follow him back to his home and his family where he's dropped outside of his uh, his uh, his house naked, you know, in the middle of the night. It was that kind of thing. It was a, a real psychological torture. I, I mean, and I don't want to minimize everything else that went on. I mean, too often we pass to 
Nazi barbarism, which, you know, they excelled themselves with the final solution. But Mussolini, often he's considered a buffoon, but he, he, the fascists in the early phase were responsible for the death of 3,000 socialists. They sent 10, 000, tens of thousands of people into internal exile, something called confino. And all told, most historians or biographers of Mussolini say he was probably responsible for the death of a million people, the premature death of a million people uh, all over, all Italians, Africans, that kind of thing too. Directly, their lives were shortened by Italian fascism. And then we have the horror of the Second World War, which is another death toll. But, you know, I, this book really deals with the early phases of this. And I mean, the, your description of the March on Rome, what I found just horrifying about mm. that is that you, know, you realize that it was largely a bluff. Most of the people who said they were going to show up didn't show up. Yeah. You know, as you point out, um, the the state had adequate military resources to put down yeah. this illegal insurrection. They didn't do it. Um, and I just, it reminded me so much of like sort of Charlottesville where like, you have two military garrisons within 20 miles of Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You have the police standing back while people with fully automatic like guns are marching through the streets and Jews will not replace us. You know, like and all this like craziness. And it's like they're they're knocking over a paper tiger. Like, how did Mussolini pull that off? That like just colossal bluff where the state at any time could have like I felt like by the end of your story, I I kept thinking like, okay, are these people just really stupid, really cowardly, or were a lot of them secretly pulling for him? Like what was going on? It just doesn't make any sense. Like it was hmm. Well, maybe for people who are listening, this is the story of a guy called Lauro de Bosis who was this Italian-American poet. His mom was from New England. His uh, dad was this sort of aristocratic translator of Shelley, um, an Anglophile. And Laura de Bosis was initially sympathetic, like a lot of Italians, to Mussolini and the fascists. Maybe not sympathetic is a strong word, but he understood why things had to change. And things did have to change. I mean, the liberals were seen as very, very corrupt, and they were corrupt. They were elderly. The prime minister at the end of the Second First World War was Giolitti, who had been prime minister six times. Um, they had embarked on disastrous colonial excursions into Africa. Um, and they were seen as the kind of dragging the entire country into war. Um, 5.5 million Italians fought in the First World War. Only 8,000 of them volunteered. The populace was not behind the war. Um, And when it was all over, even though they were on the winning side, they saw themselves as being cheated, which is why Gabriele D'Annunzio, this sort of prophet of war, poetic prophet of war, um, went to what is now Croatia and occupied the city of Fiume, as it was called then, for for over a year, well over a year. Um, and, you know, it's like we are, we have to make Italy great again. And this was a feeling. 
And this is why the story has resonance now, I think, because so many would-be authoritarians are saying, we have to make our countries great again. And usually they do that by focusing on some outside threat, whether it's Syrians or uh, Mexicans, what, what have you. In the case of Italy, it was the rest of the world. We've been treated unfairly. And the way we're going to make Italy great again is to make it Roman again. And this is why Mussolini, who is an interesting character, I mean, compared to Trump and a lot of other figures today, actually quite well-read, well-educated. He spoke French. He had been a socialist. He was the editor of a socialist newspaper, uh, the leading socialist newspaper. But he was born in a little town called Predapio. And for him, Rome was this great exemplar of, you know, he initially dismissed Rome as like a city of prostitutes and priests and, you know, bootlickers. Yeah, he was a provincial. I mean, he was yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. But then, he, but of course, he idolized the place. And uh, he uh, and, and saw himself as recreating Rome in the image of uh, Augustus, the, the great emperor. So, yeah, it's a. Uh, there are a lot of – I find there's a lot of connections to today, but we have to be careful too. I mean um, there's a, a, a great scholar of fascism called Timothy Snyder um, who has written a book called On Tyranny but also a book called Bloodlands about Ukraine and Belarus um, and Poland uh, and how you know the Soviets and the Nazis – scourged to that land uh, and he's written a short volume called On Tyranny um, which is sort of object lessons what we can take from what happened 100 years ago the original rise of fascisms and authoritarianisms and his point is that like the past the past doesn't repeat it's never going to be exactly the same but it does instruct and we have to look back to what is relevant to today and I think the reason that I was motivated to, you know, through long winter nights to keep on doing this research and, you know, keep on coming back to this story, apart from the fact that I kind of fell in love with Lauro de Bosis and his lover, Ruth Draper, who's this crazy monologist um, who has uh, been forgotten, is the fact that these sort of lessons, I think, are being forgotten. I think that the generation that fought in the Second World War um, – the, the post-war generations that set up the liberal international agreements that allowed all of these things. But they're dying off and we're forgetting, you know, how bad things can get. Gaetano Salvamini, who's this great, um, was a friend of Laura de Bosis's, a historian, a philosopher, said that Italy at a crucial moment, just when it could have been turning into a more advanced democracy decided to step away from the free, its free institutions, uh, like the judiciary, the free press, that kind of thing. And I think we're going through a similar moment now in the Western world. We've forgotten why these things were erected in the first place. We think, we're starting to think they're optional. And people are listening to demagogues like Trump because he can sell a nice message about making America great again or making whatever, Hungary great again in some kind of weird Christian image or, you know, uh, in the case of Golden Dawn, Greece, there you know there's all there's numerous. Yeah. yeah, I mean one one question that a lot of my friends had when we were reading your book was is so what do you think you know you, you give this this definition of fascism that it's like 
people voluntarily giving up their free institutions mm. and stuff like that. But it's not much of a definition. No, it's not really. It's, um, it's just. But, it's but what do you think? To to, what do you yeah. think? Um, because I've I've often been amazed, mm. even when I sit around with like uh, with like political scientists, with political theorists, with philosophers, with even people who work in law enforcement, even you know people I know who work for CSIS and stuff mm. like that. When I've asked them, "What do you think fascism is?" Mm. I've often been surprised that a lot of people who who use the term often don't. I don't know. They don't seem to like have a clear idea of what fascism is. Well, um, it's, so because it's to- totally. But what do you think? <sighs> what do you think fascism is, and how how is it different from from let's say uh, authoritarianism or from communism or from like I don't know like theocracy or like what what makes fa- what makes fascism fascism. It's such, For you. It's such a hard one. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because Italian fascism kind of is the the prototype <laughs> yeah, for I it. Know, yeah. That's um, what I'm asking you. Yeah. But, I mean, there was Peronist fascism in Argentina. I mean, it went through a lot of diff- – and then there's the weird Spanish-Portuguese model, which is sort of a concertation between the Catholic Church and the state. And it was very agrarian. It was um, – you know, it wanted to – keep church control over the population, a rural population. Um, so I don't th- – I think fascism applied to a lot of different right-wing ideologies. If you look at the Italian version, it's very weird because the constitution of fascism was dreamt up by – in this weird pirate city-state of Fiume um, and their whole idea was corporatist, right? We're going to create these sort of giant trade, industry, you know, labor – unions in various sectors of the economy and everyone will be – I mean for me, maybe the most interesting thing about Italian fascism is the idea of totalitarianism. Um, I don't think you know Mussolini was a great thinker on these ways but in, in, in this area but he did have some philosophers, a guy called uh, Gentile um, uh, who who did give a lot of thought to the philosophy behind fascism. And that there was a corporatism, but the totalitarianism, the state control, state entering into every aspect of day-to-day life was a, a real innovation. And it's amazing how far he got. As a former journalist, he really knew how to control the press. Uh, I mean, he would... There were dozens, I think eighty. He would have been newspapers. great at Twitter. Yeah, yeah, he would yeah, have been yeah, yeah, so yeah, good at Twitter. Yeah. Like that's like John Ralston Saul has been saying this from the start. He's yeah. been saying like, uh, you know, people are people are hyperbolically saying like, oh, Trump is Hitler and stuff like that. No, he's and not. And from at the all. beginning, no. Saul was like, no, he's not. No, he's Mussolini. Um, he's, he's if anything, the comparison is Mussolini. He's somebody who's like a a. A really good self promoter yeah. who knows how to work the the media of the time. Incredible instinct for connecting with the uh, the public, uh, and you can't fault uh, Trump on that. He's he's really he's really done. And of course, so he uses Twitter. But you know what we have today is a lot of information. And the interesting thing that is happening now, and Trump is partly responsible for this, is the fake news thing. Um, so. I think that 
somehow we've reached a point that there's so much information that people are losing the ability to judge what is a credible source. Now, Mussolini's solution to this was just to cut it all off and he could actually do it. That's what totalitarianism in a time where you got your information through the press and newsreels. He founded the, the Luce Institute, which was the, the newsreel service. Um, and uh, he – a lot of this book is about how he convinced Canadians and Americans, Americans in particular, that fascism was a great thing. And he did for a long time. He bluffed the world. Um, and I dig really deep into how – He got $100 million loans. He, yeah. He, I mean he really – yeah, I mean he convinced Wall Street. He convinced everybody. That. And he did it by seducing uh, – not literally but maybe. So New York Times uh, journalists, uh, Saturday Night – Saturday Evening Post journalists uh, and presenting this rosy Potemkin facade version of what life was like in his Italy. And it, it flew because people in, in the United States and the, the rest of the world, the developed world, were – the depression had, had dug in by 1930 and they were saying, oh, look, the trains <coughs> are running on time. The, things are being modernized. He's draining the pontine swamps, yeah, so there's no more malaria. He's building new towns called Mussolini in Sardinia and uh, in Sicily. You know, it looked like progress in a world where you know business people on Wall Street were jumping off of skyscrapers. So mm-hmm. there was this kind of this hunger for it, and that lasted until about 1935. Um, you know, when um, it, before then it had become very clear that the fascist economic miracle was bluff. Those trains that he talked about running on time were not actually running on time. It was just a few star services between major cities in the in the north. Most of Italy, it was still the same old delays. Um, and uh, massive unemployment started to occur. Um, and, Isn't it always uh, like this though? Because uh, I mean, I've read so many accounts of like, of of, of journalists and mm. thinkers and stuff like that who went to the Soviet Union and went to the factories where actually everybody in the factory was an actor. Right. And yeah. they were like pretending to be like, oh, communism so amazing. And then you had people who went to to Hitler's Germany and they, they would get like a like a, a tour that was very catered to make it look like it was amazing. You know, the Lindberghs went on that. And, like, and then you had people going to like Mussolini's Italy and the same thing. It just seems like very often people, when they go on these tours to maybe a communist country or a, mm. or a fascist or even like Foucault praising like the you know Iran like under like the theocratic like it, it's like you get these people they go and they just project all of these yeah. sort of. I mean, we see it here in Montreal. Like I've grown up with this in a very left wing milieu. Well, People were praising Cuba to the moon. I mean, to this day, there are like lefties here that praise Cuba like crazy. And, you know, my my sister married a Cuban guy Mm -hmm. who came here to McGill to do like a a graduate degree and ended up staying. He would just get furious. He was not like a conservative right-wing guy. He was Mm. a poet, uh, a poet and a chemist. And he would just get furious when he would hear Montreal lefties from Mile End like talking extolling the ver- he's like you go there like on tourism yeah. to cuba don't you think you're just seeing exactly what they want you to see 
and you're having a great time and you're coming back and talking about how, oh, it's so great, so much better than our horrible capitalist shithole. Like, you're, you're, and he would say, like, at dinner parties all the time, he'd like, you guys are no different than people who came home from Mussolini's Italy yeah, or from Stalin's yeah. Soviet Union. Like, you're getting snowed. You're useful idiots. I, I went there in 1997 to uh, stayed with a family in Havana. I didn't go to a resort. And I remember, I remember that. I wasn't in the, when you're not in the tourist sphere, I was going to the, those private restaurants, Paladares, with this family I got to know. And they said, we've never been to one of these. We couldn't afford it. Um, uh, uh, people would show me their ration books, um, you know. And I was, I, you know, Cuba, there have, you know, there's, Advances in education and literacy, that kind for sure. They've done great things with healthcare. But my conclusion was there was that I couldn't live there. And the artists that I got to know there all seemed extremely frustrated about what they could and couldn't say. For me, that's always the bottom line. I mean, if, you know, if the, if the state is somehow curbing your expression then, you know, it's, it's, it's no state for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's no state for us. Well, I mean, Laura, Laura DeBosis, you're the main character – the kind of the hero of of possess the air he's he's an interesting character because he's this guy who is kind of you know he's a liberal he's in many ways kind of conservative in the in the sort of oakshot sense that he likes tradition mm. he's not like a hardcore lefty he's not into the right he gets involved in this and he decides like in very kind of italian kind of romantic He's going to do this big heroic gesture, and so he learns that my son, my seventeen-year-old, mm. uh, has a pilot's license. Okay, well. and he, yeah, he loved that part of the book. Like he, like, so he was like, so he gets a uh, Laurel gets a pilot's license, and he decides he's going to fly over Rome and you know, throw out like leaflets, anti-fascist like leaflets all over Rome. Mm-hmm. You know, a little um, Messerschmitt, 83 horsepower. And I, you know, yeah. I, if I had read this story in the mid-1990s in Montreal when I was reading Adbusters and I was obsessed mm-hmm. with, like, Kaylee Lassen's Adbusters, and yeah, if we can just, like, sort of hack, like, a bunch of billboards, we'll change the society, <laughs> man. Yeah. Like, you know, we can just, like, hack it, like, this kind of anonymous type view of, like, social change that, okay, if you can just, like, get these leaflets to everybody uh, on the highway or on the internet highway, the, that this is going to change the world. I don't know. You know, reading it, reading it now, I'm like, I'm still heartened, but I'm like a little bit more kind of sad. And I wonder if, like one of my friends who read the book, he is a you know, hardcore union organizer. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this is why you looking at me. He's like, this is why you fucking liberals never get anything done. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think this like individualist liberal <laughs> view right that you're gonna fly a plane and like drop some flyers and then yeah. crash in the ocean? He's like, I noticed that that didn't topple Mussi's, Mussolini's regime. I noticed he was completely <laughs> around and in power yeah. for over a decade afterwards. So aside from yeah, aside yeah. from being like. Uh, a kind of a fun story like did this in any way change the world no i think this is just part of the 
like I, I'm saying, this is his voice right now. He's like, uh, he's a union organizer in the mm. Maritimes. And he's like, um, this is just more of what's wrong with the liberal individualistic <laughs> worldview. That right. somehow you, the heroic, good-looking individual with a small mustache, can like, <laughs> who's tall and slim and gorgeous, mm. that you can like sort of do this grand gesture. Yeah. And and he said, you know, what I've learned from like a failed marriage and from like a number of things is that actually like building anything worthwhile in the world, whether it be raising children or making a relationship work or organizing a community, it involves way more than just flying a fucking plane over Rome <laughs> and, and dropping yeah, like yeah. some leaflets. Like that is yeah. the heroic weekend warrior dad who forgets his kids middle names kind of way of seeing the world maybe like i get the he's definitely what every communist or socialist <laughs> would call like a bourgeois individualist you know and 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 totally pampered. Which is what i am yeah so <laughs> yeah and uh, and he's but at the same time he's i disagree with your friend because you have to understand the context First of all, there was there was an intellectual class that was kind of split between fascism and especially socialism and communism, right? And Loro's – so there were people like Pirandello, the great playwright, who became one of the signatories. He was an arch-fascist who signed like this – manifesto of fascist intellectuals and then there That's was like a, what f- five char- six characters in search of a, uh, an author yeah an author, yeah, he won, guy. Yeah, yeah he won the nobel prize for yeah. literature i mean he's a great playwright he really is um, so sad <laughs> yeah ezra pound too yeah yeah he got a bunch of good ones <laughs> <laughs> yeah oddly enough mm. celine i've always been a fan of louis ferdinand celine mm. but i mean whatever i'm an art for art's sakes kind of guy too mm. uh but so there was a socialist, Marxist, communist resistance to uh, what was going on. They were largely in exile. They were mostly in Paris. Some were in the United States. But there was this concentration, as they called it, in Paris. And you know they would go on to fight in the Spanish Civil War. They were quite suspicious of Laura de Bosis's motives too. In fact, they thought he might be a spy for the mm-hmm. other side. But what I found compelling about Lauro's story and why his gesture was actually effective is that he understood something key about the fascist regime. Those inside who'd stayed inside Italy and were part who intellectually resisted, you know, if they were socialists, communists, whatever, couldn't do anything. Um, they, the fascists were very effective at their policy of totalitarianism and censorship. Lauro correctly intuited that he was one of the few people who had the freedom to move between North America, all over the world, in fact, and come back to Italy because he sort of had the trust of, the, of Mussolini. He knew him. Um, and I'd argue that the, the socialists and communists who were kind of the the main cohort of the resistance, weren't doing very much. They weren't communicating. Lauro, through this heroic gesture and a series of 
chain letters, which sounds laughable to us, but they actually reached hundreds of thousands of people. And he, without saying that we have to overthrow society completely, he, completely, he laid out a strategy for day-to-day resistance to the regime, which I thought was prescient. The thing is, he is very much a liberal hero, and it's easy to scorn liberal heroes. Um, Adam Gopnik has written this lovely book called A Thousand Small Sanities, in which he defends liberal heroes from the 19th century and contrasts them with people like Emma Goldman, for example. Um, and they're Often their little gestures can seem laughable. They can seem individualistic sometimes. But I think that Lara's message, and I I reprint several of his manifestos that were dropped from this plane, um, his chain letters. He's founded this organization called the National Alliance and got, you know, many important intellectuals to contribute to it. He was really working on, on the level of ideas. And you can't discount discount that. And no, I mean, I, if, if, very, if it had yeah. led to a revolution, he would be like a, a sort of a Patrick Henry type, yeah. like the British are coming, the British are He would be, his action would have been, if he had not died and if it yeah. had led to a revolution, it would be, he'd be on like, you know, Italian money. And they would yeah, say, yeah, sure. they would say this was this really important thing, right? Um, but because it didn't lead to uh, immediately to any kind of revolutionary change, then there's uh, he's open to the charge that you know my friend was saying that this is ridiculous, that you this know, is not like yeah. that. This is not. Um, heroic that this is uh this is absurd that this is and you know he's the one that actually like pointed it out because we were both really into like ad busters in the 90s mm-hmm. and he said like this is like the kaylee lazen view of like social change that somehow if you can deface a billboard in the metro you're gonna change the fucking world like seriously like you know the the sort of um right brad pitt in fight club that if you can like you know, hack these things that this is going to lead to like, no, you're not like this. Uh, this is why context and, and reading history and, and looking at history uh, from the documents, from the eyewitnesses is so important um, because it's totally, it was totally different. The key was the way that Mussolini had bluffed the world. And one of the ways he bluffed the world was saying that nobody can penetrate the impenetrable skies over Rome not even a pigeon without my permission. Laura de Bosas did it. He humiliated the fascists in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that Mussolini and his henchmen really felt. And I spent a lot of time in the Archivio Centrale dello Stato, which has all of the records. And the fascists were freaked out for 10 years after, after Laura de Bosas flew off into the night, that he was still alive. <laughs> he constituted a threat to them because they were working on... Elvis is coming back. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so they're spottings from Barcelona, from London. He's leading, a, he's leading a, a squadron in the RAF now. He's coming back to us. Your friend is right about how concertation and, you know, collaboration and, you know, social change 
can involve a lot of work. But at a time when the fascists, the authoritarians, the totalitarians were obsessed with working on the level of selling their ideas. And Mussolini was trying to sell them internationally. He did sell them to the, to the Nazis who would uh, – Hitler would accept the fact that he had been inspired by Mussolini's. He said that without the, without the black shirts, there would have been no brown shirts. Um, this was a this was a war of symbols of ideas, and I get the point. People have said, "Well, what did he actually accomplish?" That's true. He didn't bring down the state tragically, but he inspired so many people. And I find that like the evidence is there just in the fascist fear of him. And later on, you know, there was a Laura de Bosis uh, battalion um, on the Spanish Republican side during the Spanish Civil War. For a long time, he was uh, a well, he was an admired hero among a liberal patron saint. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. And then, then he's slowly been forgotten, but I agree with you. He didn't topple. He didn't do, didn't do anything. It was premature. He came at the midpoint of the Ventennio, the 20 years of fascist rule. And this is the time the historians now call the years of consensus between 1929 to 1936, where the Italian population were pretty much behind uh, Mussolini. Things started to shift after the invasion of Ethiopia. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I get that. And sometimes I was thinking, well, this guy's a bit of a dilettante. He's a bit of a player. He's trying to seduce all of these older, uh, <laughs> older women, you know, and you kind of get him repeating his shtick. But yeah. I just came to admire him more and more. It'd be more intrigued. He was like an incredibly cultured guy. It's, you know, it'd speak, you know, uh, could translate ancient Greek into Italian. And, um, yeah. And, uh, and I guess I do have a weakness for these types. I mean, the same, I, the same I do thing, too. The same I do, thing, I do yeah. too completely. And yeah. I, I found myself very attracted to him. I found him a, a very kind of fascinating character. But at the same time, I've I've known him, you know, a fair number of organizers I know on in various movements and mm. stuff like that who have been berating me for my tendencies for you know much of my adult life, <laughs> and so and so I. <laughs> I recognize that like some of what they're saying has merit. It's not like it's not like all it's not all wrong and I get I get why they're why they're critical of that. Here's the problem for a writer. <laughs> now, there are a lot of I'll, I'll take the example of Shanghai Grand. There are a lot of great uh I know there are a lot of writers who are really intrigued by the communist the, the Maoist experiment and um in China, right? I chose to focus on Mickey Han, who was totally obsessed with the glamour, this intercultural sphere of Shanghai, which I found really interesting. It was a meeting point between the Chinese and, uh, and foreigners, but it was also very much a zone of intense capitalist exploitation. And she, at several points, acknowledged the fact oh, she that totally she was, yeah, yeah. yeah, she was like living off the fat of the land. And there are people like Edgar Snow who like, I love I love yeah. her. I mean, I love mm. the fact mm. that she takes the rickshaws because yeah. she's like these people who think you're doing the organic fair trade by not doing it. like come on. Like you're in an unjust system. If you don't take those, you're not helping somebody feed their family. Like she was amazing. I mean, 
yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wonder how I would have felt, you know, uh, riding on a rickshaw. I wonder if I would have been the one like Edgar Snow, the uh, the uh, American writer who wrote uh, Red Star over China, who like followed a donkey and lived with Mao and his up-and-coming revolutionaries behind the lines. Um, thing is, I'm always attracted to the people who have that sort of spark of life, who have these good stories to tell. In the case of Laura de Bosis, I mean, there were some really interesting socialists um, um, like the Rosselli brothers uh, in, in Paris um, who were, you know, very committed – but really, for me, their stories weren't as interesting. There wasn't as much pathos. There wasn't as much imagination. And they were doctrinaire. I mean, let's face it. And uh, one of the beauties of a liberal hero like Laura de Bosis is that he was, uh, well, he was committed to sort of dialogue, to working things out. Um, and it, he was his idea of his life was glamorous. His political views were what many at the time would have seen disturbingly middle of the road. He thought he was not a royalist, although he was suspected of being a royalist. But he thought that for the Italian population to oust Mussolini, there would probably have to be some back and forth with the king. He didn't think that the time was coming. So for, for a lot of people, that was a big issue, the fact that Laura de Bosis, you know, didn't call for the complete overthrow of the monarchy, which would happen right after the, the Second World War. But by then, Mussolini had already been tossed out. So, you know, I... Part of me is just, I, I have to fall in love with the person and the story. Um... And I agree with your friends, you know? Yeah. Sometimes Mickey Hahn pissed me off because she was just <laughs> like floating over the surface of yeah. all the deep suffering. And there were people who were far more passionate and uh, involved observers in that. And sometimes that was the same thing with Laura de Bosis. But I was trying to do a whole bunch of things in this story. And it's not just the story of this guy. It's, it's you know, the, the origins of this is my kind of love of the city of Rome. And my confusion as to why, when you go to Rome today, so many of the fascist landmarks persist. And that's something that, uh, that intrigued me and, and troubled me. Mussolini had 20 years to rebuild the city. So unlike Berlin, where all of the traces of Nazism have been erased in, uh, in, in Rome – you know, there's a giant obelisk in the piazza that's called Piazza Lauro de Bosis that says Mussolini ducks on it in Carrera marble, right? Um, it's uh, – and they're buildings that have little sculptures of Mussolini on the facade. That's why, uh, you know, I, I, we, we have – we have to talk about these things because Italy really hasn't come to terms with this past. And uh, we're seeing it with the rise of, you know, the far right there. Asa Pound, named after Ezra Pound, or these sort of anarchist, punk rock, right-wing, ecological. Yeah, it's, there, it's, it's weird. It's completely <laughs> weird. I mean, like, okay, so one, one um, he, he asked me to leave his name out of it, but to regular listeners, you'll know who I'm talking about. Uh, one of our, our former guests on the podcast, who is an expert on terrorism, mm -hmm. and he runs a, uh, he runs a, 
sort of an outfit that does like uh okay i'll stop there um but <laughs> but um but anyway he's he's written a great deal about like everything from osama bin laden to various terrorist organizations and what is the appeal of of terrorist organizations and what he said after reading your book was um he said you know Loro's sort of letter that he writes for if i die mm-hmm. he said on the one hand I, I found it very inspirational but on the other hand i couldn't help but notice that it sounds exactly like the videotapes that isis and al-qaeda people Interesting. Okay. like huh. leave before they fly a plane into mm. a building or like blow themselves up that it's this they have the same kind of like sense of themselves as these larger than life kind of heroes who are you know and so it um it just it made him sort of think and he's not there's another friend of mine who made exactly the same comment like and asked me to ask you about this Mm -hmm. uh that what we're seeing in laura debosis is a manifestation of of some deep deep powerful human tendency to show self-sacrifice for the group however you define your group mm-hmm. whether it be for you know Christendom whether it be for the umma whether it be for the italian people whether it be for freedom whether it be for the you know worldwide communism or for the white race or for it, however you define it in a ugly or beautiful or interesting way that there is this uh, natural human tendency towards um, towards self sacrifice, whereas in the in, in a lot of mammal species like you know bears for instance, like the only time you see that is with a mother and her cubs, where mm-hmm. she will sacrifice herself for her cubs. But with us, it's like that tendency has been ramped up and extended to larger group things, so that people will kill themselves for various kinds of ideas. Uh, some of them ugly, some of them beautiful. So what do you think about that? That I don't know, that there's something going on there that's... Yeah, for sure. I, I totally accept that. It's a weird thing writing a book about um, uh, someone who's... He, he was 20, he was 31 when he died. Uh, so I'm 20 years older than that. And sometimes I just look at it. I mean, he was a beautiful golden youth, but he was he very really young, was. you know? Yeah. I mean, he was physically attractive. Very. Um, yeah. Incredibly like the creme de la creme of his society. Um, you know, uh, you know. Tall, slim, good looking. Yeah, no, but yeah. just incredibly cultured and yeah. incredibly privileged. I mean, and, they put him in jail and he writes like a... Like a tragedy, or like yeah, he was a what the hell? Like that was crazy. Yeah, yeah, which was then performed in the forum in front of the king and Mussolini. Crazy stuff. But you know, he was also such a slouch. (laughs) I know, (laughs) such a slacker. You know, and very much that sort of self improvement ethos, which you know, it seems really old fashioned now, but an incredible guy in a lot of ways. But very young and. 
and imbued with this sort of romantic spirit that had been passed down through from the romantics through his father, who was his translator of Shelley, um, with a death wish, like a romantic death wish right from the start. He was always drawing pictures of like Pegasus flying mythical creatures um, in the margins of his school books, that kind of thing. And he's obsessed with uh, D'Annunzio's flights because D'Annunzio flew over um, – Vienna at the end of the First World War and – well, he actually was flown. He didn't fly himself. But he dropped all of these pamphlets saying surrender, you know, uh, come over to the Italian side. And it was you know, seen as this great beffa, this great stunt. Um, and Lauro as a teenager had been very impressed by this. His older brother Valente had died um, in a plane crash and yeah, – Laura was okay with that because when they found the corpse, he was apparently was smiling, uh, you know. So it was this whole ridiculous infantile almost. You didn't mention that in your book. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's in there. Really? Yeah. I remember you mentioning that they found his body among the wreckage of the plane. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't know you mentioned he was smiling. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what Laura was told anyway. So he wow. had this kind of romantic cult of, of the hero, which I find infuriating now. I mean, I, I think it's – Jejun. <laughs> it's uh you know I get yeah. it though. Yeah. On an emotional it, level, it, I get it. it. But like, it made I, it great I, to my write. my yeah. like my favorite, you know, as as my son, my older son pointed out to me when I was bitching about Loro, he said, Oh come on, you're the same way. Mm. Like he said, Your dream death is that somebody pulls out a gun in the metro or in the classroom and you run and mm. like stop them and get shot. <laughs> oh, really? That's like your that's like your you would love to die that way. In a kind of romantic, heroic way, which is kind of true. Um, but I, I was thinking of that because my kids are watching lots of Marvel movies right now, and it's like this whole, like this whole, soup, the whole Superman thing is also an example of the sort of bourgeois individualistic in the city that's going to, to pieces, you know. Only, and it's like skinny little teenager came up with this idea, you know, the Captain Marvel Shazam <laughs> type thing embodies that perfectly. But I mean, there's a, it's frankly, it's, I, I, it's deeply rooted, but it's immature. And it's probably not the best way to go through your life. There are better ways to mount a resistance to fascism and authoritarianism. I he's he's flawed. He's young, but I couldn't find a better person to tell the story of how Rome was transformed, how foreigners were tied up in that because him being Italian American, um, and uh, you know when I got frustrated with Lauro, Lauro, um, I'd always come back to the initial motivation for writing this book, which was Rome. How, why is the Rome that we see today like it is? And how much had it been transformed by the fascists? And that's why there's another character in this book, these art Canadian archaeologists. The that's Banyanis. exactly yeah. what I was going to yeah. ask you yeah. about next. That's so weird. We're like connected. Uh, I was exactly going to ask you about that because that I found really fascinating mm. because uh, that just seems very often once you get any kind of authoritarian government mm. in power, whether it be super religious or left-wing or right-wing or whatever, um, they start getting their sights on science, right? So you have these archaeologists who are doing like digs in Egypt, mm -hmm. and of course Mussolini wants them to justify why 
Rome has been there forever. Yeah, right, because Rome is, uh, Italy is occupying or trying to occupy uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia and Northern Africa, yeah. and they're trying to justify their presence there, and they're doing it on the level of ideas, and they had some smart people working for them. Um, but uh, part of the story is the story of these, um, uh, a Canadian archaeology, archaeological couple, Italian. He's Benyat, Gilbert Bagnani. Uh, his mother was Canadian. His uh, father was Italian. Uh, so similar, kind of a parallel thing. I was trying to get the idea of like Lauro was fighting in the air, fighting for symbolic control of the air over Italy. And these people were fighting, fighting in the sand. In the sand. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they had to go to Egypt. That came through very clear. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, yeah I mean, it's uh, uh, the, the, it was kind of a sideline to go off to Egypt. I mean, they did that by force. It was it was, it was necessary. They had to. They couldn't continue working in Rome. And he was genuine. Benyani was genuinely intrigued by Egypt, but. Originally, he was like a child of Rome, and he I, I I spent a lot of time talking about their reactions to how Rome is being changed, and his intellectual resistance to the fascist idea that the Roman Empire was somehow Italian. And he's like, no, the Italian. He wrote a, a great guide to the Campania of Rome. He said the Italian, the Roman Empire, was not Italian. It was Roman. It's a different thing. And that was a brave thing to say at the time. Um, it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that was my way of coping with the day-to-day of the transformations in Rome because Lauro was going back and forth between Canada, the United States, and Italy. Um, uh, he was part of the Italy-America Society. He was called upon to give these lectures about Italy. So uh, he toured North America. Uh, but the Banyanis were there for most of the 20s and, uh, and they were interesting eyewitnesses. Uh, Stuart Banyani, who is uh, a woman um, from Toronto. She was a young woman, so she was great. Because what a she, fascinating character. Yeah, I loved that yeah. part of the story. Yeah. You know what? I mean, I, I'll admit right now that I, I wanted a con- Canadian component to this story. Um, uh, it's, the book is published in Canada and there were times when and I, when I started the research I knew that the Benyanis and Laura de Bosis, uh, were knew each other, they were friends but you know digging deep into the archives so I went to their archives in Toronto and Petersburg and uh, to uh, Laura's archives in Rome and in um, and Harvard didn't find that as many connections as I thought, but there were still it was still a good way to tell sort of this elite response or lack of response sometimes to the rise of fascism in Rome and I think together they, they they're they because they're all such vivid and good observers uh, and and funny writers often especially the Benyanis, that you know it all comes together. But that's, yeah. a, that's really the challenge. You got to find like the you got to uh, for me when I'm doing these kind of narratives, you got to seek out the the ones who are really alive to the moment. And yeah. The but what, what I liked about that mm-hmm. is that I've I've seen that so many times. I mean, my my downstairs neighbor, uh, well, he's he's since uh, moved a couple blocks away, but like um, he has he wrote like a book on like best selling book on Conrad Black, and he's written a number of different things, but like. One of the things he did is he translated this book 
that was written by a Quebecois like academic mm-hmm. uh, about the same time that uh, that they were writing, and he wrote it on slavery in New France. Oh yeah, yeah okay. And this was just when kind of the nationalist movement was was emerging in a big way, and he was kicked out of UDM, and he ended up like having to like like he lost his tenure at UDM. People found his research disgusting and upsetting mm-hmm, because no. he basically was saying that francophones, like French people in New France, owned slaves mm-hmm. and that. enslaved yeah. enslaved the yeah. yeah yeah and enslaved like the native people and had black slaves and stuff like that. This completely messed with the idea that francophones have this wonderful beautiful relationship with native people and that, <laughs> and that blackface and like slavery are completely foreign to places like Montreal and Quebec. And he showed that, no, there were plenty of like slave owners in Montreal and Quebec city. And that, uh, that anyway, he was like blackballed for this. And I've heard numerous stories, similar stories, uh, friends of mine um, who have taught in places like Lebanon, Egypt and stuff like that, who, uncovered the fact that um, Arabs and Muslims did not run those areas since the beginning of time, that in fact they moved in and completely uh, horribly colonized the like places like Egypt had Christian minorities for centuries, and they moved in and killed and slaughtered and imposed there. And of course, if you scratch deeper, the Christians moved in and killed and slaughtered the people that were there before, right? So it's uh, the the act of archaeology and history is always inherently quite like unsettling to the powers that be at the moment. And, and that, I like yeah, that you involved yeah. them because they were, of course, going to get in trouble with Mussolini eventually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for Mussolini and the fascists, they were very selective about what part of the past they wanted to highlight. And what you see in Rome now, interestingly enough, is the result of that. Like the Colosseum um, used to be surrounded by this sort of beautiful medieval tangle of little alleys, you know, like you'd p- find in parts of the Marais and Paris, that kind of thing. And you'd approach the Colosseum through this tangle of streets and then all of a sudden you'd walk out of, from between two buildings and there would be the Colosseum. The, uh, their idea was that everything that was medieval um, and especially was built in the 19th century was backwards and lamentable and they tore them down to expose and to valorize, as they would have put it, the, the ruins. And then they built these triumphal roads that they could take their Alfa Romeos and Fiats <laughs> along in these vast processions. So if you go through the Forum now along the Via dell'Impero, that's like a parade route that was carved through the Forum for the fascists. Um, so a very, what had been a very atmospheric city, beloved by the Romantics, and that was one of the things that the fascists and the futurists really hated, this sort of foreign lionization of what was perceived as Italian backwardness, the charm and, you know, the, the, the glory that was Rome. Um, they, they poured a lot of effort into changing that. And what we see now is this kind of like fascist theme park with a lot of exceptions. I mean, there are so many amazing neighborhoods that remain like Trastevere in, in Rome. Um, 
but uh, they they were largely su- successful because they had twenty years to do it. And I'm constantly just amazed where you'd see fascist eagles popping up, uh, you know, in old government buildings that uh, were built to last for centuries. And they probably and they haven't gotten rid of any of that stuff. No, right? If, and didn't like was it like Jim Carrey or some like actor uh, said Mussolini was a fucking asshole on Twitter, and then. One of Mussolini's, like his granddaughter or something like yeah. that. What was that? Actually, I don't remember. I didn't hear the Jim Carrey. It was thing, like but... she, like, like an actor said something about Mussolini, mm. and then actually somebody on Twitter with the last name Mussolini, who's like the granddaughter. Yeah, Alessandra Mussolini, who's the the granddaughter. Yeah, I mean, she was in the European Parliament. I'm not sure where she is now. There are these sort of crypto fascist parties. Like fa- the fascists were banned after the First World War, but they founded this party called MSI, hint, hint, Mussolini, if you want to vote for it, <clears throat> which has persisted. And, you know, they've, uh, they've uh, arguably Salvini kind of embodies their, the former minister of the interior sort of embodies those ideas. I don't think that Italy and Italians have ever had the kind of dialogue that happened in Germany about renouncing this past. There have been superficial things done like renaming squares with heroes of the resistance, that kind of thing. But the fact that there's still this 30-meter tall obelisk to Mussolini uh, near the heart of Rome is pretty disturbing. Um, yeah, well, this uh, is, uh, I, I interviewed the philosopher mm-hmm. Susan Nyman who lives in Berlin mm-hmm. and her latest book is called Learning from the Germans. And we we actually had two episodes talking to her about this. And she was her book kind of compares the way in which Germans have dealt with the Nazi past and the way in which Southerners have dealt with the slavery past. Mm-hmm. And I asked her in the last discussion we had a couple of days ago, um, I, I told her about your book. She bought your book and she's reading it. Um, and I said, you got to really, you know, I, I can't wait to hear what you think about this. Uh, and her preliminary comments were that, yeah, there's a real parallel there that if you don't actively sort of reject that past and say that was fucked up and we shouldn't have done that. And like, here's why that was really wrong and talk about all the ways in which it was wrong then it's so easy for the embers to just catch especially fire after, again. Especially after the generation that, you know, lived through it has has died off. And it becomes this kind of memory of like, well, yeah, he drained the swamps. Uh, he literally drained a swamp. He actually, <laughs> unlike Trump, he actually built a lot of shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's the whole myth of the trains running on time and all that stuff. So, you know, here in Montreal, we have – the famous church up on uh, oh, Dante, which still has... That a, had to come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I haven't been there, but there's the Casa Italia, which has recently been um, renovated, and there's like fasces set into the floor. It's not just in Italy that this happens. There's an Italo Balbo Drive in Chicago, which commemorates... So he was an aeronautics minister for the fascist state, and he led a raid, as they called it, of fascist seaplanes in the early 1930s that touched down first in Newfoundland, then I think in New Brunswick, and then on the St. Lawrence. 
And, you know, in some of the social clubs around here, you can still see images of this flotilla of, like, seaplanes before heading on to the Chicago uh, Fair, where there's a monument to them right now. So it's unfortunately... This is why I think it became very important for me to to go where I was going with this book and to finish it. You know, it's just we need to continue talking about this, and history has so much to tell. And the explicit, the specific circumstances of one man, one woman's, or, or you know, a few journalist stories can really convey what it felt like to be in that situation where authoritarianism was on the rise and everyday violence was being winked at by authority figures. Um, Cops going along with it. I mean, that's that's the thing Susan Nyman said. She said she did um, a lot of, a lot of her book is based in the deep South during like the 1950s and 60s and stuff. And how like the parallels are just astounding between sort of Italy in the twenties and, and how the, the cops are, taking their uniforms off right. and participating yeah. in like kind of KKK activities and that the cops are sort of, as you say, like winking at the black shirts and like mm-hmm. kind of like letting them off. And this seems to me to and, be... And the judges too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that like on a basic kind of Hobbesian, Machiavellian level, one, one of the most essential functions of the state, any state, is to keep the peace. And that means that anybody who is doing violence to people um, has to be stopped regardless of whether or not you happen to agree with them or not. And as soon as you get into this ugly situation where the cops are looking the other way as a particular group does violence to some minority group, that... That is when you're on the road to badness. That's what Timothy Snyder, who was talking about the on tyranny guy, the border uh, bloodlands, he says when the paramilitaries are riding in vans with uh, the cops and the regular enforcement guy, the end is nigh. It's already gone too far. And this is a real risk. His point is it's a real risk in the United States because you already have a highly uh, increasingly militarized law enforcement organization, uh, law law enforcement sort of culture uh, with assault vehicles um, and you have privatized prisons. Uh, It's, you know, the conditions are kind of there if things do get Bad, and you have the militias, right? So it, it is something to watch out for. Well, I don't think the we're there yet. the largest police organization yeah. in New York City um, that posted on Twitter, I, I mean, you saw this, where they said, like, uh, to Mayor de Blasio, who's been an active, uh, you know, kind of supporter of Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. things like that, where they said uh, when he went to speak to the graduation day of the, of the, the police kind of academy, they all turned their back on him. And they have said, they have like said to him, the leader of it said, uh, we have declared war on you. Hmm. Like when a police organization in a free democratic society is saying that they have declared war on the elected representative of the largest city 
in the most powerful country in the world. That is fucked up. Like that is really, really creepy. And they're they're saying, you know, actively saying, like, we, you know, we kind of like don't have respect for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying like I'm a big de Blasio supporter. I'm not, I, I don't really, I don't live in New York City. But I do know that if I have, a, you know, friends and former students who are cops, mm-hmm. and if the head of a police organization said that to Valley Plant, yeah. I would be fucking livid yeah, like i'd be a little scared too uh i'd be way more livid than scared mm-hmm. that is like you know bring in the military bring in the provincial police bring in the rcmp how the fuck dare you like challenge our elected leader and this is what i see in your book that you know the 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 fascists sort of make these outrageous statements and claims and people just fall back and accept it. Oh, we're seeing that all over again. I mean, Trump can, you know, it's it's his little war on truth. You know, he, he, when he speaks, he lies. Mussolini was doing the same thing. Um, uh, all It was all bluff. I mean, he was, he was claiming this economic strength, uh, this, this progress that didn't exist, that wasn't happening. Um, and uh, And it was like... Puffer fish that just kept on blowing up and blowing up, and of course, you know, by the time the Germany got into the act, it became very clear that the Italian military was not up to the task, which is why I, I, I'll come back to Laura de Bosis's um, gesture. It was kind of like an attempt to do the pin prick to to prick the puffer fish and make it deflate, and he, he almost succeeded. I mean, because it. Because we would be authoritarians and authoritarians rely on communication strategies and symbolism, you know, in, in Mussolini's case, it was radio and speeches from the, the balcony. In Trump's case, it's Twitter and Fox. Um, these th- these things can be fought on the level of ideas and symbols and heroic gestures or, or symbolic gestures like Lara's flight over Rome. So it's, I think we have to fight would-be tyrants on the level of ideas and on the level of truth and insisting on what is truth and fighting the idea of fake news and fighting – because their 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 war is a war on truth. That's how they sell their lies, right? By discrediting, casting doubt on the authority of journalists, you know, the independence of the judiciary, the free press, all of this stuff. Well, I I, I think reality is is often a really good correction, right? Um, so I have, I have a couple questions for you. Um, I mean, well, first of all, like just in terms of reality being a correction, I think that you know, as we were talking about before we went on, we started recording. Um, I think the coronavirus is, in many ways, 
the worst thing that could possibly happen to Trump yeah. and his supporters in the same way that World War II was the worst thing that could have happened to Mussolini because it's the reality principle, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like you have there is your bullshit and your media persona which is confronting the reality of a vastly superior military or a virus that requires a coordinated science-based intelligent response, yeah. right? So if you're like a libertarian who's like, I fuck the government, we should privatize the fire departments and abolish the CDC. Like you sound, <laughs> you sound like an idiot, right? Like when we're trying to deal with the coronavirus because we actually do need like yeah. uh, a coordinated response, right? So, um, and you know, I, I see a lot of that, but there, but, I had one question, and I, I kept writing this in the margins of your book. Uh, from a kind of like a an evolutionary biology perspective, a sort of Franz Duval type perspective, mm-hmm. like what do you think is what is the enduring attraction of fascism? Because hmm. it does seem to have, even right here in Quebec, there is. What is the attraction of fascism, the enduring attraction of it? It was surprising for me to dig down into the roots of, like, the the origins of fascism because it was so fucking glamorous, Um, especially in the – and I look at some of the images of the early fascists. So – like the poster boys of the early fascists were the they got perfect hair. They're jacked. Yeah, know? yeah, they're marcelled hair. <laughs> but they were like this incredible. Like their slogan was "Menefrego." I don't give a damn. Right. A lot of them, the poster boys were the Arditi, the shock troops, uh, kind of like the stormtroopers, who were schooled in hand-to-hand combat. And after the First World War, after they, you know come out on the winning side, but without the glory they hoped for, they were kind of at loose ends and cruising around, you know, the cities of Rome on early motorcycles, um, getting drunk. And uh, and they were allied with the futurists who were a pretty interesting group of people. I mean, they were like uh, Marinetti and um, they were all saying, let's get rid of tired old civilization. And I can see the political, the liberal political class in Italy at the time was elderly, uh, in many cases tied up with corrupt real estate practices. So it was very much like we're getting back to the whole sort of adolescent glamour thing, but on the other side, on the fascist side. This is this was very appealing to young people, to people who want a radical change in the way that communism, what Soviet communism was too. It's just like Let's hang the landlords, you know, with the guts of the – with the intestines of the priests and move on. Like all like, – like aesthetic movements, like political movements, it has a, a visceral appeal especially to the young. Now, liberalism is so tired and unglamorous and <laughs> plodding in comparison. It evolved. It's like Adam Godbeek says, yeah. it's like your, your, your dad telling you like – 
get in don't get into a car with somebody who's drunk right my daughter right. uh, yeah 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 it's yeah it's, it's the one <laughs> and i can't believe like and i was attracted to all of those movements i when i was a kid anarchism Me communism i was like all over the map i was right into it but it's weird i guess you know i'm you know 30 years on uh i'm kind of seeing the value of Boring, tired old liberals. And I'm seeing it now that it's in retreat. And I think Adam Gopnik made that this point very well in his book that this sort of liberal post-war consensus that we all took for granted and yawned over, especially as a teenager. I was like, come on, you know. And Canada always kind of exemplified that, you know. It was like the extensible shoe of countries, you know. And it was very hard for me to get excited about it. But as time goes on, I'm kind of like, yes. I mean, now that we're seeing the rise of Orban, Duterte, Modi in India, um, Bolsonaro, Trump in the United States – that this, 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 the rise of the would-be authoritarians. All of a sudden, I'm trying to define liberalism and 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 see what it brought to the world. Now that it's it appears to be in retreat, and uh, you know they had a lot going for it. And Laura de Bosis, as a liberal hero, had a lot of faults. There was a lot of uh, individualism and uh, and glamour involved in that. But there was a lot of sincerity too and there was a lot of commitment to ideas and just day-to-day heroism. The liberals get a a, a, a bad rap I think um, in the way that we middle-aged dads sometimes get a bad <laughs> rap because <laughs> we ain't what we used to be. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it doesn't have that appeal. But uh, – I think I think now that it's actually threatened, I can see the the value of it, and I can kind of rally behind it as much as you can rally behind uh, what what is well in in a middle praise, of the road in ideology. praise of middle aged dads. I will say that like uh, middle aged dads who raise their kids with like liberal values, I will say that like I've noticed a difference, which is that. Um, my my friends who raise their kids in a much more authoritarian way, mm-hmm. um, whether it be from a kind of a, a Pentecostal authoritarian way or like a Sunni authoritarian way or whatever, uh, or like a kind of a Jewish authoritarian way, I will notice that they may have had very well-behaved kids when the kids were much smaller than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, like my 17 year old is like six, two and my, <laughs> my, my 16 year old is like five eleven. They're taller than me and taller than my wife. And, uh, they can, they can take you. <laughs> yeah. They can take me. They can totally take me. Um, like they are like very, very civilized, you know, cultured human beings. They're, they're gentle and they're, they regulate their, their own kind of like violent tendencies and erotic tendencies in a way that a lot of the kids that I saw who were raised in a more kind of fascist way, in a more authoritarian way, as soon as they're big enough, they rebel in a pretty intense, you know, uh, horrible way, right? And this is like something that I've I've had a lot of very uncomfortable conversations with friends of mine who live in like in Germany and, and Northern Europe. And they're like, you get these kids who've grown up 
in let's say like like Syria in a very authoritarian um, households, and they they move to a place where you have much more liberal values, and they can't they can't have a couple glasses of booze without turning into like very abusive people, mm. right? Uh, what I've grown up with here in Montreal and what, I, what seems to be the norm in a lot of liberal societies is that people learn how to govern their emotions much more effectively. And so like my, my, my sons, you know, being big, they don't behave like barbarians hmm. when their inhibitions are, are reduced a little bit. Loaded so word, I think bar- it's, loaded I, word barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like, I think it's actually better I think liberal values are not as exciting if you're looking at them in an abstract sense. I don't know, but if, they I produce necessi- more- I don't know if I go along with you. I wouldn't associate that necessarily with religious upbringing and, and liberal. Maybe not the, the lens I so, look through it. So I, I like give jo- me what you think. I like George Lakoff, the, the cognitive scientist. His, his whole thing is he, there's the nurturant, the nurturant father model in particular, which is – traditionally associated with sort of liberal, lefty, progressive, and then there's the authoritarian father. Uh, you know, and that can be in any religion so or a they, lack of religion. They, can you flesh out the two different – because I don't think all of our listeners know. Uh, yeah. For, I mean the nurturant father is the one who participates in the, in, in the raising of the children. Um, and uh, it's a pretty useful way of, for looking at like the divide in North American and, and Western politics. The nurturant father is like, OK, sort of like the, the dad on family ties, remember? He's like the PBS kind of guy who like consults with the wife and, and is fully involved in the family. And then there's the authoritarian – dad who um, says that when your father gets home yeah exactly the very old school but also the authoritarian is the idea is that the world out there is dangerous if you remain within the family group and follow all of my rules i will protect you from what's out there and lakoff says that this is a pretty useful lens for looking at the divide in america particularly american political life because the two Schools have a lot of trouble communicating, and I guess you can extend this to other parts of the world too. I mean, if any sort of patriarchal, authoritarian society, whether it's religious or not, um, will have that authoritarian dad. So Mussolini was the authoritarian father figure. The nurturant uh, father would be the boring old liberals um, uh, who. Nobody was attracted to. They weren't that glamorous. And the nurturant fathers get a lot of crap these days. They're the ones who are carrying the babies on the little kangaroo jumper in the front. <laughs> they get mocked in Hollywood films and things like that. But you know what? I mean, it's boring. It's unglamorous. Some people see it as unmanly. But it, it, you build a great relationship with your kids. You you, you build kids who are questioning and engaged in the world, who are willing to have dialogues and to, to build something. The authoritarians will just say, okay, anybody outside the group is a th- potential threat. And if you stay within the compound, if you stay within our faith group, um, then you'll be okay. But you have to follow my rules. 
and I'll be out making a living and I'll bring home, you know, the, I'll bring home the meat mm-hmm. uh, while, while, while you stay here, I'll keep you safe. And, you know, I mean, Trump says that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, right-wing politicians uh, basically send that message. When I started this book, I was, I was just putting together a proposal and, um, Trump had just retweeted Mussolini's thing about better to live, uh, better to live a thousand years. What was it's the famous one? It's uh, better to live a thousand years as a lion. No, better to live a day as a lion than a thousand years as a sheep, right? <laughs> and you have that that chapter in your book, like forty million, she- yeah. forty million sheep. Because Mussolini eventually, in a in a in a not too subtle aside, called the Italians forty million sheep. Anyways, I mean that, but that's the, that's it's that's it, right? You're either on the side of the lions or the sheep. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole idea of like, I, I actually want to drill down on that a little bit because, like, I one thing that Annalisa and I noticed when we would go down to the states. A big difference between our kids growing up in the plateau mm-hmm. versus like kids uh, at Christmas time, like down in the states who grew up in the suburbs, is that um, our kids were much more street smart because they've like walked around junkies and on the, they walked to face, you right, know, they yeah. walked like a you know a mile to school every day and back from like early grades, like grade two. You know, and they've they've sort of walked around panhandlers and junkies yeah. and and like sketchy people, and so they don't see all strangers as being necessarily like benevolent, and they're kind of like skeptical of people that they don't know, and so um, when we would go down to family gatherings, like they would not necessarily be really friendly with people that they don't recognize. Mm-hmm. They would be much more like what you would find of any mammals in the animal kingdom. <laughs> it's like I'm seeing somebody I don't recognize. Yeah. I'm gonna hide behind daddy's legs. Oh, the kids. You know, okay, little like kids. they'd right. be like, uh, "Yeah, daddy's my protector, mommy's my protector." I don't know who the fuck you are. Right. Like, I'm not gonna come and kiss you. I don't know who you are. Like, I, that's a an affectionate thing that's for people that I'm close to. So. Uh, and it was it was an interesting kind of like because my wife is a sociologist and she was like this is a very interesting kind of sociological experiment. It's like watching how like you know young mammals who've grown up in a particular urban environment they're just much more like both of my sons they with their friends they go and walk to the top of Mount Royal like in the middle of the night to watch the city by by night and like they've been doing this since they were young kids mm. and to do that you have to be like a very street smart intelligent kid who's wary you don't trust yeah, everybody yeah, exactly. you know how to deal with cops you know how to deal with weirdos and drunks and like you know how to like uh you and are capable you know willing to use violence if necessary willing to like but you don't trust everybody and you definitely don't like let anybody get in your space all the time. Yeah. Like well, street smart. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, part of my, I, <laughs> my alter ego, uh, my, my social media presence, especially on Twitter is I wrote this book called strap hanger, which is all about 
riding public transit around the world and making the case that, you know, there should be alternatives to the cars in the cities of the future. Um, so I, I, you know, I've never owned a car uh, similar to you. I've got uh, two. I've never owned a car in my life yeah, either. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I'm always making the case. So a lot of kids in the United States in particular have like grown up with an SUV strapped to their ass, right? And I think the perspective that emerges is, you know, you're in your bubble. I find the automobile, it's just so glaringly obvious to me that there's this like this bubble that sep- separates you from your fellow citizens and the city. And my kids are seeing it now because we very rarely use them. We're metro riders. We're bus riders and we're walkers and cyclists. Yeah, just right? to our to our audience here, mm. um, Trask Resco, <laughs> it's the middle of winter right now. And this motherfucker drove here on a bike. <laughs> I pedaled here. I, saw, I didn't drive. I saw, him, I saw him pedal up here on a bike. And he said, uh, yeah, my hands are freezing. It's, it's winter in Montreal right now. And that's, and I'm riding my summer bike right now. I've also got like a snow bike with studded tires. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm a 365-a-day uh, bike rider. It kind of keeps me sane. I love it. Um, and, and slim, too. I hate you. You're such a skinny bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I don't have my ass strapped to an SUV. <laughs> but, uh, but my kids are noticing now. They're, they're like – they're my, my Desmond has a giant Hot Wheels collection. He's totally obsessed with cars. I love the look of cars, the glamour of cars. I grew up – So you know, do I. Yeah. Um, I, I get that. But – it's becoming pretty obvious to our kids that like they're they're kind of like maybe it's our reactions, but they're very wary of cars. They're more wary of cars than they are of humans. I think they're better judges of you know the intentions and which people to avoid on the street. Cars are just uniformly afraid of them, and that's probably because of us because we're kind of like our kids you, too. You our kids out. too. They're they're very. They're like raccoons or skunks moving around in an urban environment. Yeah. They like they are very, very aware. Like both of both of my sons being, you know, urban mammals, <laughs> they on a street that's one way, yeah. they look both ways. Right, yeah. They, and, and you they, have to know because the cars are getting bigger and bigger. There's yeah. like a size warfare going on with SUVs, which is kind of this escalation of alienation, of you know feeling safer in your bubble. But it's disastrous for our kids are four and uh, four and eight years old. I mean, there's like a a, blind, a frontal blind zone of like twelve feet in front of some of these Escalades and things yeah. like that. It's yeah, a, no, it's yeah. it's a, and, and you know what I love like Projet Montreal has been, right, like, turning a bunch of streets in our neighborhood, uh, cutting down. There's, like, no traffic, especially where I live, like, you know, right by Elsa is, like, Laval and Roy. And they've been just, like, cutting down. So, you know, turning in into, like, like, like you have a stretches of Prince Arthur where there's just, like, no car traffic. And we love it. Yeah, I, I love but it But it's too. amazing the amount of hate-filled yeah. articles in the Montreal Gazette and yeah. the Jordan Montréal. They're like, this is the end of the world. And in fact, if you talk to the people who live in those neighborhoods, they love it. Yeah, It's primarily like the people who complain about it the most tend to be people who own a business in my neighborhood and but actually live in like Pierrefonds. Right. Yeah. So they drive in and like they don't like it 
that it's more inconvenient mm-hmm. to like drive into the neighborhood. But the people who actually live in the neighborhood, and since Proje Montreal has made these changes, uh, and yes, I'm a big supporter of Proje Montreal, <laughs> um, but like since they've made these changes, like what has happened is lots of like lawyers and accountants, people who make good money have moved into the neighborhood right. and they're walking to buy all their shit. Yeah. So it's actually ended up benefiting those businesses. And a bunch of those businesses, um, including one of them, a certain electronic store on the corner of Roy <laughs> and Saint-Laurent, who I like love and patronize a great deal, okay. but who was super anti they've now become big supporters yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Because what they didn't realize is like, yes, what we've lost in car traffic, we now have people that have moved into you know, condos in the neighborhood and they're, they're foot traffic now. Yeah, exactly. Or, and bicycle, spending, or bicycle traffic. And there's, yeah. or, or bike traffic. Mm. And they're spending way more money. Yeah. So we're making way more money. Yeah, I mean, think about the way that people in cars shop. They do like, okay, I've got the, I've got the car, I've got the SUV. I'm going to go to, I'm going to do the one-stop shopping at a supermarket or a mall, right, and load the Big thing box. up. I can't do that on my bike. I can't do that walking. I visit like five different shops to get the, like, the grocery shopping done for two or three days. The fish shop, you know, I'll go to the Jean Coutu, I'll go to the um, to the, the Bob's uh, Fruiterie on the Mile End and uh, – but I'm spreading it out, spreading out the love, you know. It takes longer, but that's part of the day's experience. It's really valuable to me. I know all of these merchants now. And some of the people, I think Jimmy Zubris used to be kind of <laughs> against this. He runs a stationery shop in our our neighborhood. Uh, but now he's working for Project Montreal. I remember 10 years back or 15 years back him being a little, yeah, I don't know how this is. Their policies are going to impact, but now he's. I've known he's on him board. since I was eighteen. <laughs> oh, have you really? Okay. <laughs> he's yeah, he's a, he's a character. Yeah, I mean, he's he's with the party now, of course. Yeah, 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 but but he's one of the many people I've seen that has been sort of uh, kind of changed by seeing what the practical result yeah. results are of these things. That very often you have an idea of what is is working until you see it working right so i wonder if i mean this is obviously like just a, a theoretical question but i was dying to ask you this if loro de Bosas <laughs> in like a kind of like an hbo series or a netflix series yeah, yeah. where you sort of have an alternate history if he had not died and crashed into the ocean if he had survived if he had actually managed to like sort of come back in blaze of glory and become a leader of a political party in mm-hmm. Italy. What would he been like? I think he would have played a big part in like the post-war recreation of Italy. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of interesting writing. He had these crazy visions for what was basically a European Union, uh, these unpublished essays I found. I think he would have been like one of the intellectual founders of the uh, Italian Republic, to tell you the truth. I think he was kind of born to die as a hero, though. It's, it became hard for me to imagine him uh, proceeding. I think that he uh, he wanted to live. It was pretty clear he was 
deeply wanted to see his mother again. He was in love with Ruth Draper and expressed it in beautiful letters to her. But he did have this martyr complex. Part of me has trouble imagining him beyond making this gesture. Had he survived, though, and who knows, he might be out there still. The mystery was never <laughs> fully resolved. Well, You'll I, have to I, read I the book. I kept thinking of him as like a John <laughs> Reed type character, yeah. you know, who's buried in the in the Kremlin and uh, who was this American guy. I mean, he, he grew up in Oregon who – and he's, you know, made famous by the movie Reds. Ten Days That Shook the World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he was this sort of very, very intense, powerful character, journalist who – uh, was ready to die and ended up like you know dying in this very kind of dramatic way, but I wonder if I was sort of like making kind of a list of people, uh, and I thought like like uh, Laro Devosis and John Reed, Jack Reed, and a couple of people like if those people had lived, what kind of an effect would they have had and. Uh, well, it would have been weird. Be like... It would have been weird for him in the like because Italy became, you know, very economically prosperous in the '60s and much more materialistic. It was kind of like the end of an era. I mean, uh, he, he would have maybe a bit of, a bit of a fish out of water um, in post-war Italy. I wonder if he would have spent more time in New York. He might have. He yeah. might have. There's a, a new show now. Um, I don't know if it's out yet. I think it's going to be on HBO or Crave. Um, called It's based on the Philip Roth novel. Yeah, yeah, the plot against uh, The plot against yeah, America. Yeah, great book, yeah. And, you know, Annalise and I saw the the sort of the, the promo for it, and we both just turned to each other and were like, oh, my God, that's like Taraz Crasco's Possessed Air. Like, it would just be... You know, I mean, we haven't watched it yet. Has it come out? I think it's like supposed to come out in a couple of days. No, I'm like, not sure. I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to it. I it's love like the book, it's yeah. like a couple of days now, but uh, it's supposed to come out this whole show, uh, which the overlaps are, you know, because you talk about uh, the Lindberghs and their fascist sympathies and mm-hmm. how um, you you sort of allude to the fact that perhaps if things had gone differently, if they had played their cards differently, maybe he could have ended up being like president of the United States. I don't think I say that. That's Philip Roth's uh, idea. I mean, he was... You do overlap. You do talk about his popularity and how his, like, and the the kind of, for, for my wife who's American, that part was a little bit creepy. Yeah, it is. Because she didn't realize how... She didn't realize, as a New Englander and an American, she didn't realize how popular fascism was in the states for yeah, for, yeah. for for a minute. Yeah, I mean these parades in in New York, uh, you know, fascists uh, parading alongside Rudolph Valentino's uh, coffin. It's pretty insane, and the number of just sort of, well, I mean, she had but, no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, you know. A lot of that has been – but I mean here in Montreal, as we said, we've got the fascist church. We've got the fascist cultural center. I mean there was a period there up until the mid-30s where it was given a lot of credit um, in uh, in a depression-ridden uh, – on a depression-ridden continent. But uh, yeah, it's uh, – you know, I think it would, this would make a great series too. It totally uh, would. Yeah. It totally would. It's uh, – it, 
it is such an amazing story. I mean, friends of all, his response, I, I sent him a, a message on, on Facebook about this. And I said, you know, what do you think is the enduring attraction of fascism? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, what did he say? What is it? Mm-hmm. His response was, he said, well, you know, as primates, mm-hmm. um, we spent most of our evolutionary history living in very hierarchical systems where we had like alpha males or alpha females that kind of ran things. And it was very, very hierarchical. We, at a certain point in our evolutionary past, long before even Homo sapien, sapien, um, we started creating this new thing, which was kind of egalitarian societies where you had kind of a more equal share of, of power. And we've been doing that for a long time. And we're very good at that. However, whenever we feel that we are that our community is under threat by an alien invasion or a coronavirus or a war or uh, you know whatever whenever we feel like under threat we tend to default to hierarchy mm-hmm. so fascists his response was fascists know this Authoritarians know this. Theocrats know this. It's a really deep wisdom. They yeah. they understand that we default to hierarchy yeah. when we're scared as fucking shit, right? Yeah. So they so their job is manufacturing and, the threat. Exactly. Yeah. Or exactly. The war on yeah. terror. The yeah. war on drugs. The war on you know the war on the Reds. The war on like they they understand create the fear. And you will create the conditions where people default to hierarchy. Uh, so that's like that. His his point was like the enduring popularity of fascism is the fact that we tend to default to hierarchy when we're scared. I mean, what do you? Yeah, I mean, fascism. You, fascism is just one of the authoritarianisms, and so that I mean that. That makes a lot of sense from an anthropological point of view. Um, but uh, fascism had its own unique characteristics, which are kind of interesting to explore. They're very much a product of their time. They might not be repeated in exactly that form, which is why calling someone a fascist is it's, it's throwing around a label that's not always accurate. I mean, it, it can be kind of lazy thinking. Fascists were something very specific. As I said, the Spanish-Portuguese fascists had their own characteristics. The South American fascists had their own characteristics. And the Italian and uh, German fascists were quite different from one another. So, yeah, but the basic thing, I mean, fascism is not the equivalent to authoritarianism. It's a, it's a, it can be a brand of authoritarianism and authoritarianism, I think he's right. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very basic form of sort of human social reaction to external threat and defaulting perhaps to a more to an earlier phase in our evolution. Yeah. Um, it's not it's definitely not the best of <laughs> the human experience. <laughs> I realized we have gone way over time. Yeah. Um so 
Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're gonna make me ride my bike home yeah, in the dark I know, now. In the, I hope in I've got the some freezing bikes. cold snow. <laughs> That's not uh, that bad. Winter is coming. Winter is here. So thank you so so much for coming on the podcast. And I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy uh, Teres Gresko's "Possess the Air." It's a fantastic book. I think you will agree with me that this absolutely needs to be turned into a Netflix series. <laughs> the last one, by the way, Shanghai Grand, I, I signed an option for it. Um, and it was so close to being made into an HBO or Netflix thing, but the whole, everything that's happening in China, they're counting on Chinese uh, uh, Chinese co-production and Chinese money. And uh, China all of a sudden started censoring uh, – scripts and canceling productions about uh, the Republican era, which is a shame because that story for me, the, the Shanghai of the, the 20s and 30s was just waiting to be made. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Like, I, boardwalk I just, boardwalk like, Empire on the bunt, you know? Yes. Know. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. the comparison that I thought of. Yeah. I'm like, this would have been like, you know, Boardwalk Empire times three. I mean, it would have been just with opium. So, yeah, I mean, well, they had lots of drugs in that series too. Yeah, but like, true, it would have been just so sexy, so fun to watch. I mean, like that could still happen. You know, it's a, I think it's an eternal story. It's just waiting it to, to happen. All right, thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure, <laughs> pleasure meeting you. Bye.